Hello, and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast. October 26th, Weird Wednesday, number three. So yeah, this is the last of the Weird Wednesday sampler episodes for this uh, special, and probably going to be the last one for a while. Uh, got some interesting ones today. We've got, to start off with, we've got The Changeling. Uh, from 1980, directed by Peter Medak, who is a Hungarian-born uh, director who has lived most of his life in Canada. Uh, we're starring George C. Scott. Uh, some of you might recognize him from Exorcist Three or from, you know, Doctor Strangelove if we're going for a non-horror one. Uh, he also played the sort of guest prosecutor in Anatomy of a Murder, which is a very great movie. It's a very long one, but it's definitely worth a watch. So the basic story here is that we have this uh, composer from New York named uh, John Russell. Uh, that's Scott's character. And he is vacationing with his wife and daughter, and they die in a car accident. Uh, one car is coming another way. A big truck is coming the other. They skid too close to each other, and truck just skids off to the side and takes out their car and you know his wife and daughter. Um, you know he's trying to cope with this, so he decides to get away for a little bit. He moves to a large, secluded Victorian era mansion in Seattle, and comes to realize that there is some sort of paranormal entity haunting the place. Uh, in an attempt to investigate, he holds a little seance to try and get the ghost to talk, and he actually gets a recording, uh, just mentions the name Joseph. And this leads him down a rabbit hole that leads him to the home of Senator Joseph Carmichael, and comes this weird sort of tale of a family that long ago... Um, experienced the death of one of their children. The whole thing, I wouldn't say, is like a character study of Russell, but it does, the gradual revelation of what the ghost story is and how the sort of twist at the end, it does sort of affect him on a very, it does sort of connect to him on a personal level, and you see how the trauma of the loss is affecting him as well because he's also lost a child. So the idea of this child's ghost lingering is especially jarring for him. And the ambience and the sound design is just absolutely amazing with this. And I hadn't heard of this movie until relatively recently, although apparently not only is it on a lot of, not only is it a cult classic, it's been on a lot of, you know, top hundred or so horror films of all time. Uh and the Genie Awards, which is sort of like Canada's, you know, Canadian Directors and Movies Only Club, uh, they had their first award ceremony for movies of 1980, and this won eight categories. And it's also been nominated for two Saturn Awards, which for anyone that doesn't know, that's basically the highest awards for the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror films. So it got two nominations in that as well. And it's been listed as one of the most can influential Canadian films of all time. 
but yeah, haunted house, just don't go in expecting like insidious <laughs> or whatever. It's a much slower burn than that, and it's a little more reliant on atmosphere than jump scares. All right. Next next up, we have The Baby. Insert Let's Go meme here. As the description on Shudder reads, one of the weirdest horror movies to come out of the 1970s, and that's saying a lot. The Baby follows the case of a social worker who is reeling from the death of her husband in a car accident. Uh, and she's visiting one house, the Wadsworth family. You have the mother, uh, you have Alba, and you have Jermaine, uh, both of whom are fairly normal-looking, if a bit eccentric. And then there's a rather startling occurrence that she runs into. There is a son in the family, but this son, who is 21 years old, has the men- has the mind and has the mind and behavior of an infant and gets treated as such by his mother and sisters. And it's not that he's like got a mental challenge or anything. It's hinted that he's basically all there mentally. It's just he's been conditioned to act like an infant. He's not allowed to like walk or talk or feed himself on his own or do anything on his own. And he gets punished for doing so up to and including at one point, one of his sisters like fucking hits him with a cattle prod. So trying to, uh, solve this riddle, trying to see if she can, you know, peel the guy away from the family to see if he could be reformed becomes a bit of an obsession for this social worker. And, you know, trying to get him the proper care and education he needs because, you know, he's 21 years old. He's old enough to drink, and yet he's still wearing diapers. He barely talks. He crawls everywhere. So it is, at first, motivated by trying to get him the help he needs to act like a functional human. It's definitely a strange mix of, like, psychological thriller and sort of a family melodrama. It's really weird. Uh, yeah, if, in case the description didn't give you the indication it's weird. It's really fucking weird. But, yeah, up to and including the tagline, what happens in this nursery isn't for kids. But if you can sort of stomach the kind of garish, fucking ugly 70s house decorations and you are okay with a bit of an uneven pace because it kind of drags a little bit in the middle. Just, if you watch it, stick with it because I watched started watching a long time ago, just didn't touch it, went back on Shudder because Shudder doesn't let you erase your history and started watching it again and I kind of end up, am upset that I waited so long to watch it. Because the ending is one of the most fucking bizarre things I have seen in a long time. And, you know, that's saying a lot with the movies I've seen. <laughs> anyway, moving on to, oh, would you look at that, another Video Nasty alum. We have The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. It's also been called Don't Speak of the Dead or Don't Open the Window, which is a title that do- is kind of really, really bizarre because there's no, like, big window opening scene. But... You know, side note, there's a lot of movies that got released in the U.S. with 
uh, don't as part of the title. It was just kind of a common thing with like foreign exploitation movies. And a lot of don't movies got ended up on the video nasties list, probably because they just assume that if it has don't in the title, it's probably got some weird shit going on in it, or at least graphic shit. But because of the like loopholes about the video nasties, this one circulated a lot under various different names because Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue was usually the one on the ti- on the list. I think this is I think someone said that this one probably had more alternate titles than any other movie on the list aside from like Bay of Blood or Bloodbath or Carnage or Antifato. So you you get what I mean. Uh it's an interesting little one because this was it was from that weird time period with zombie movies where it's like post night of the living dead, but it's like pre dawn of the dead. And there's an interesting thing with them is that they're kind of a weird mix of a Romero zombie with a voodoo zombie where, you know, they're slow and plotting and they're almost entirely like the recently dead, but they can also turn, uh, still decently intact corpses into, into zombies by exposing them to infected blood. And, you know, it's very much got that sort of 70s anti-establishment tone to it. It's more environmentalist than anti-militarist with a lot of zombie movies because it's usually like a bioweapon. In this case, instead of a virus or a bioweapon, it's this sort of like radioactive ultrasound device that they're that the agriculture ministry is using for... Uh, pest control. The basic idea is that it works the nervous system to the point where the insects just go, just go ape shit and attack each other and tear each other to bits. And it affects humans because although ostensibly it doesn't affect more developed nervous systems, the reason it, the explanation given is that when it works on the dead, it's because the nervous system is starting to decay after death. And I mean, it really does work because like part of the conflict that comes in here, and this is part of the like Romero element as well, just with the whole movie, not just the zombies is that our two protagonists kind of run into each other completely by chance. They're both going up to a relatively to about the same ish area in what's actually Sheffield, not necessarily Manchester, although that's nearby. Um, and they run into each other at a gas station, quite literally. Uh, Ida basically backs over uh, George's motorcycle, which is leaving the pump, so um, you know she offers to give him a lift into town, and when they stumble onto the murders, there is a police detective is really stodgy, really traditionalist. He goes on about all this, you know, permissive rot. He, you know, the sex and drugs. And he actually suspects them for the murders. And later on, when he gets to look at some of the bodies and how they've been dismembered, he thinks they're not only murderers, but like satanic cultists. And, 
you know, I normally get tired of like the whole disbelieving authority figures in a lot of horror, but to be fair, in some situations, I mean, what else would you expect? I mean, you know, you've seen so many zombie movies, but I can't help but feel I would be that person if you told me dead people started walking around again. It's got some pretty good performances, especially from our main three. Got Ray Lovelock, who was uh, Italian-born. He's the son of an Italian woman and English father. They met during the occupation during World War II. And he's, before and after, been a star in a lot of TV shows in Italy. He's been in mostly a lot of, like, rom-coms or, you know, sexy comedies, as they're called in Italy. Uh, Arthur Kennedy was the American star for this. He's playing the police chief. Um, came over, just thought he was going to do another gun-for-hire job. Actually became very good friends with the director, Jorge Grau. He was really on board with the whole, you know, environmentalist message of the movie. And I want to say this, I'm not deriding her performance at all. She did wonderful, but do please spare a thought for our female lead, Christina Galbo. Because her husband actually died a couple days before they started filming. And, you know, I got to applaud her for insisting that they go forward with the project. But I can't help but imagine that sort of shell-shocked look she has throughout the whole movie is kind of genuine. You know, but... Sad as I am for her in that situation, she stuck it out, and she was a champ, and she looks really great in the whole movie. And, you know, she manages to be convincingly scared without feeling, like, annoyingly helpless. But part of that's probably just the writing as well. Moving on, we've got a movie that I heard about from Red Letter Media. They were supposed to watch it, but they broke their VHS player. Um, I don't know if they ever went back to watch it, but it's called The Love Butcher. It's a sleazy little mid-70s exploitation film. The Love Butcher follows a disabled gardener named Caleb and his charming, well-spoken split personality named Lester. We open with a really, really actually kind of artsy opening with an image of a woman impaled with a pitchfork just lying in the middle of a garden. And there's pleasant music playing over the credits. And there's images of garden plants before we hear a woman scream. And then cut to a crime scene sequence. It's mostly a character study of Caleb and just this sort of like demented inside of his mind that has to parcel off between the you know charming but predatory Lester and the sort of, you know, know, really nice and very gentle, but also kind of, you know, socially awkward Caleb, who just feels like he has to put up with the abuse that he usually suffers from a lot of his clients, because he's gardening for a lot of people in this sort of ritzy neighborhood. The sequences where it's him arguing with Lester are really surreal. Like, all the sound is just subtly manipulated. Some scenes, there's a little bit of, like, reverb distortion the lighting is usually all skewed like it's not how you'd expect in a regular room at least with you know I don't know how people set up their lighting when they're just you know in their room on their own uh, like I said most of the acting is really hammy especially with the cops and this one like reporter who's trying to 
you know, help them catch this killer because they've had no leads so far. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely sleazy and mean-spirited even by the standards of this kind of, like, murder mystery movie. But it has its own sort of exploitated exploitation movie charm. Uh, if you can find a physical copy, I always recommend, you know, supporting physical media because you don't need a Wi-Fi connection to do it. He says as his Xbox completely shit the bed and has no other Blu-ray player. <clears throat> but I will include the link in the episode description when this is published, and I'll also post it on social media. All right, next up, another don't title. We have Don't Look in the Basement, and yes, this was also on the video nasties list. It's also known as Death Ward 13, or The Forgotten, and I'm pretty sure it got a remake at some point, and I have no interest in that remake. But it's one of four movies by Texas-based filmmaker S.F. Brownrigg, who also directed a movie called Scum of the Earth, uh, Poor White Trash Part 2. I forget the third, I forget one of them, but this was one of the others that he did. And it's the sort of... It's a sort of experimental asylum uh, where the main doctor thinks that the best way to deal with the patients and their, you know, psychoses is to have as little barriers between the staff and the patients as possible and to find a way for them to harmlessly act out their fantasies so that, you know, you don't bottle up their stress and everything. Unfortunately, this backfires one day, and one of the patients murders him. And a new nor- and a new nurse joins the staff, and it just... You know, I use this phrase a lot, but it's really the best way I can describe it, because the whole movie is really surreal and demented. It just sort of spirals into madness at this point. Uh, you can find... I'm pretty sure it's on Tubi, at the very least. It's free with ads. Uh... The YouTube channels Bloody Cinema USA and Kings of Horror also have the whole movie in their entirety. I'm not sure how they've manipulated it to get around copyright, but definitely just go look those up. Uh, Like I said, Bloody Cinema USA and Kings of Horror. Those are two different channels. And we have, yes, another video nasty and another don't title. Directed by Joseph Ellison, we have Don't Go in the House. was released around the same time as the first Friday the 13th. It's uh, very much like Psycho. We have Donnie Kohler, very much a Norman Bates type. He's working at, I think it was a steel mill or a quarry, something like that. Like, full disclosure, I had a very rough schedule at work for the past few weeks. I'm struggling to find a lot of time, so I'm trying to do these in as few sessions as possible. I uh, didn't fully rewatch although I'm going off of what I can do off the top of my head. But he's very much a Norman Bates type. Um, You can probably guess what his deal is with his mother um, currently. But we get the backstory, and the thing is with his mother that she always used to, like, burn his arms either with, like, the stove or, you know, cigarettes when he was bad. So he's got that sort of trauma, and he's been taking it out by, well, we only see it once, but he's capturing uh, women 
and bringing them back and, you know, murdering them with flame. He has this sort of fridge room, basically. And that, this is the best way I can describe it, because it's got, like, steel plates all over the all over the wall. And it's got this interesting sort of blue lighting that makes the whole room feel kind of cold, and it contrasts really well with the uh, orange and red from the fire that he uses with the flamethrower. And... I, I like this for a variety of reasons, not the least of which being that it's a great character study movie. But as sympathetic as it makes him at some point, it's also a responsible treatment, I would say, of serial killers if you're concerned about violence in the media. Because it does the opposite of glory. Because a lot of people were worried that movies like this like glorify serial killers. This does the opposite. At no point, like, you feel for the guy... To, a, to an extent, but you don't want to be, you don't think he's cool in any way, even, you know, even when you're the edgy asshole like me who usually likes the villains more than the heroes a lot of the time, but he doesn't win, he doesn't get these women back to his place through, like, charm or having some kind of, you know, Hannibal Lecter-esque master plan. It's mostly just wheedling persistence and dumb luck that gets them there. So... Rather responsible treatment. It shows a serial killer as a sort of, you know, depressed, hopeless failure of a human being, basically. But, unfortunately, uh, the general tone didn't really go over well with audiences. And Ellison kind of retired from filmmaking after this. He always told the story that it was released in a theater, and it was, like, right next to a to a room where they were showing Friday the 13th. And, you know, he thought he'd poke his head in, watch Friday the 13th, um, you know, just sort of scout out the competition, as it were. And, you know, people were clutching their dates, people were screaming, people were freaking out at Friday the 13th. He goes back into his, uh, when Sid started playing, it's just dead fucking silence. He realizes, as he said, that he made a completely different kind of movie than... Friday the 13th. I personally like this better than the original Friday the 13th, but that's just me. Uh, it's just because this one doesn't feel dull at any points. Uh, but, you know, he Ellison decided to call it quits after that, but I gotta say this. It has a really good cinematographer by the name of Oliver Wood, uh, who also directed a lot of big Hollywood movies, including the the Bourne Trilogy, uh, you know, Identity, Supremacy, and Ultimatum, and a few other movies I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, oh, he did also do the, uh, the Honeymoon Killers with Leonard Castle, but there's also a great sort of uh, story, just to give you some idea of how the effects were done. Basically, for the one scene where we actually see a woman get torched with the flamethrower in the room, the way it worked was they set up a bunch of mirrors and prisms to sort of, um, you know, you'd have the actress chained up, and you'd have the flamethrower off to the side, and it would superimpose the image over her burning, because they didn't have a professional stuntman they could do for, you know, an actual live burn. And... Ellison recounts the good work that Oliver did. The effects were so 
like good that he was looking down in a little viewfinder to see what it would look like going through the camera. And he yelled, you know, action. Fire goes, actress starts screaming. And apparently Ellison said that it was so lifelike that he actually like jumped out of his seat because even with all the machinery exposed, the machinery of filmmaking exposed to sort of lessen the immersion, it looked so real that he worried that his actress actually got burned. So that should tell you about the work Oliver Wood does. But unfortunately, it got blacklisted in the UK. It was not well received here. I personally love it, though, so go check it out on Shudder or whatever else you can find it. And, uh, yeah, go check out The Honeymoon Killers, too, uh, off-topic, but that one's on HBO Max. All right, next up we have Motel Hell, which is a bit more comedic than a lot of the other ones here. It's usually regarded as a sort of parody of movies like Psycho and Texas Chainsaw. Uh, Motel Hell follows a... Sheriff, as he attempts to piece together the curious number of disappearances in the sort of mountainous town region. I'm sure it has nothing to do with the popular smoked meat that the owner, owner that, you know, Vincent and his sister Ida are selling out of their motel up in the mountains. It was originally meant to be a more serious film, but the budget constraints encouraged a more comedic approach. I'm sure you can piece together that these two are cannibals by now, but... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you to go watch the movie uh, to see how. Again, this one's uh, on Tubi and a few other sites like Roku Channel, I think. And finally, my favorite on this list, Possession. Again, another video nasty. But this one is... Uh, this one's something else. Uh, I think there's a physical copy you can get from Mondo Vision, the uh, physical media re- release label. And we follow a married couple of Mark and Anna in West Berlin. They're respectively played by Sam Neill and Isabella Gianni. And to give you some idea of the difference in reception, like this movie, um, when it was released in the U.S., it was cut by almost a third of its runtime, and that might have been part of the reason why it wasn't well-received here in the States. And in the U.K., like I said, it was banned for a while because people thought it was just artsy and coherent nonsense on the continent however Isabella Gianni won best actress at Ken <laughs> that year so it goes to show you the difference in reception um, so Mark is a spy and he's and he's left work to try and repair his family life because he's been incredibly disturbed by Anna's bizarre behavior after she starts asking for a divorce and again the whole spiral of madness goes on and there's just so much to dig through with this movie. I mean, part of it is just... Well, okay. Andrzej Zuławski. Uh, Andrzej Zuławski. That is my best attempt at pronouncing this goddamn Polish name. Just go look how it's spelled. But he's recounted in the past how he got the idea from this. It's inspired partially by his own breakup with an actress that he was married to when he lived back in Poland and also the constant interference of other people in this relationship drama in the movie was also partially inspired by the sort of like soft ban that he got from Polish authorities which 
basically was the reason he packed up and left for Western Europe. And he recounts that he was a big fan of, you know, not just Polanski's Repulsion, which we talked about at the beginning of this month, or The Brood, which we talked about on the 21st, but also Ingmar Bergman's, you know, Scenes from a Marriage, the little miniseries. And to give you some idea, the best way I can describe this is that it's the surrealist, demented, disturbed version of Scenes from a Marriage, because the whole thing is about the breakdown of a relationship, the breakdown of a marriage, and that's also part of the reason why uh, Mark is, you know, a spy and why this takes place in Berlin, because it's meant to be a sort of, you know, metaphor for the breakdown of the marriage is also just the country itself is divided because you have the Berlin Wall running right through the center of town. Um, I'm not going to spoil much, but there's also a monster in it. It's meant to be a sort of metaphor, I'm pretty sure, but it also has a physical presence. And the effects are amazing and also kind of creepy for the sort of uncanny valley that they reach. It's also... Uh, done by Carlo Rambaldi, who, if you don't know his name, a lot of you should if you're Spielberg fans, because he did the puppet for E.T. And, you know, phenomenal music, but really the standout is the performances, especially Isabella Gianni. And, you know, people have criticized Zuofsky for the, as they call it, hysterics in his movies. Because... It starts at kabuki-level theater, theater-level dramatization, and it just increases from there. I've actually descri- I have actually described Isabella Gianni's performance in this movie to a friend of mine in the following way. For those of you that have seen Pearl, imagine Mia Goth's performance in that if she was doing cocaine in the bathroom in between takes. That is the best way I can describe it, and I don't really know how else but that should give you some idea. <laughs> You're welcome for that image, by the way. But, yeah, I I love Possession. I don't really know how many other ways I can say this. It really, I know this sounds pretentious, but it is a movie that you have to just experience instead of watch, because I can't really describe it in a way that does justice. It might be too weird for its own good for a lot of people, but if you can stomach that kind of thing and you're willing to, like, pick the movie apart and analyze it, especially on a second viewing, I can wholeheartedly recommend this. Buy the physical media version. I'm sure there's places where you can find it online if you're still not entirely convinced. Uh, maybe look up what other people have said about it. There's a great documentary called Video Nasties by Jake West, and uh, you can skip to the trailer for Possession and have some critics' commentary on it before it begins. But it's... If I had to pick a top, like, 25 movies of all time, this would definitely be somewhere in there. All right, so that's the end of the sampler for this week. I hope I didn't ramble on too long, didn't sound too repetitive. Uh... Tomorrow, we are going to be going into the Phantasm series by Don Coscarelli. And 
after that, we're going to get back into another long series with Into the Dark series on Hulu. 29th, we'll be talking Lucio Fulci. And then, when we get to October 30th, well, that's the shape of things to come. You know what we're getting into. Until then, signing off. Have a good night. Stay safe. Bye.